Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, listeners. Welcome to Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR. And on the, and this is Lalita here, by the way, Lalita Chalaya. I'm, I'm um, by myself uh, today. But we have a jam-packed show. Now, just going on the theme of solidarity, we heard yesterday that uh, port workers from Port Botany, Sydney, and Brisbane workers, 100 of them, were sacked by SMS. And it was big news, but the media seems to have um, gone very quiet on what's happening and the details of the struggle there. This morning I heard that the Fair Work Commission has ordered the workers um, who ha- who have struck in solidarity to return to work. So that is a major um, battle coming up with the employers gaining more and more confidence in attacking workers. So keep your ears to the ground. I'm sure 3CL will keep you updated if no one else does. Okay, today what we have, we have an interview with um, Malaysian activists who are visiting Australia recently. And I interviewed a candidate for the elections that's coming up in Sri Lanka on the 17th of August. And we have our regulars, Marcus Harrington and Kevin Healy, who are contributing to our 8 o'clock and 8.15 slots. And we will interview Dr. Andrea Banting, who's an engineer but has an enormous passion for environment on the issues of emissions trading and so on. And if we have time... I will run an interview with, uh, which was had, no, not an interview, sorry. It was a contribution by a nurse who was working at Manus Island. So we'll see how the time fares. So let's start off with the interview I had with Nick Azmi, Nazmi and Akmal Nazir. Now, just to fill you in who these people are, Nick Nazmi is a Malaysian politician and currently serves as a National Justice Party youth leader. He's also a deputy speaker of the Salongo State Legislative Assembly. Now, Salongo State is where Kuala Lumpur is, and it's probably the most industrialized uh, state in um, Malaysia and probably the business center as well. Akmal Nazir is a director of Malaysia's National Oversight and Whistleblowers, in short, called NOW. It's a non-profit organization, and... He's, he and his team are involved in investigating allegations of a massive scam to siphon billions of dollars from a strategic development fund wholly owned by the government of Malaysia. And recently, if you, you probably haven't heard this, but 
the um, Prime Minister of Malaysia was accused of um, siphoning up to $700 million into his, into his account. And this rumoured news, whatever you want to call it, was revealed by Wall Street Journal. And there has been absolute, absolute mayhem in uh, Malaysia. And um, recently, um, a whole host of government officials were replaced by people who support the uh, current Prime Minister Najib um, Razak. So here we go with the interview. Thank yeah. you for agreeing to talk to 3CR, Nick Nazmi. Uh, this is the Solidarity Breakfast Program. Yeah, thank you for having me. Okay, so maybe we could start off with the latest um, uh, you know, announcements by the DAP, which is the Democratic Action Party, mainly Chinese-dominated party in Malaysia. Mm-hmm. Um, they have stated that Pakatan is re- uh, is dead. Now, Pakatan, for listeners in Australia, is a coalition of three different groups. One is the DAP and PAS, which is the Islamic Party, and the Party Keadilan Rakyat. Nick Nasbi, I wonder if you could update us with the latest political developments in Malaysia, given that DAP has declared that Pakatan Rakyat is dead. Uh, DAP made the announcement um, quite some time ago after PAS proposed a motion to severe ties with DAP. And what has happened since is that PKR uh, has come in and said that, you know, we agree that the formal structure of Pakatan is no longer tenable uh, as things stand. But at the same time, you know, we must try to revive a new movement um, based on the original spirit of Pakatan, along with political parties as well as the civil society. And at the same time, um, you know, the Pakatan state government of Selangor continues because all three parties has gave their confidence to uh, the chief minister Azmin Ali. Okay, so this means that the coalition in um, Sarawak is continuing as well? Selangor, yes. Selangor, but there's also a, a coalition in Sarawak, isn't there? DAP has made it clear in Sarawak that, that they are they want to be out of Pakatan. But I think as far as we are concerned, yeah, I mean, you know, again, the formal structure does not exist, but we are trying to work with any party that sticks to the original spirit of Pakatan and to fight with the BN ruling coalition. Hmm. The, there's, there's analysis that Malaysia is actually in transition from the old to new politics. Yes. And uh, it's interesting, over the last two elections, mm. uh, be, uh, the Barisan National, the ruling party, has been gradually losing its supporters. Yeah. Um, so I see this as a, a positive development in mm. terms of politics. Now, where I come from, I see that unless the, the Chinese, Indian and Malay working class get together, yeah. you're not going to be able to solve the problems in Malaysia because of the race politics that is played constantly by by um, Barisan National. Yes. What, what, do, what do you think about that? Definitely. I mean, I think the, the problem that we've had is that uh, previously uh, the only workable or tenable model for Malaysia was to have uh, communal-based parties uh, working together on a coalition level. And perhaps, you know, it was perhaps at it, for its time it was tenable, but now in, at this day and age, it's no longer so. You know, the younger ones, they are more demanding. They want politics based on principles, multiracial politics. And that's why you see parties like uh, PKR, which is the most successful multiracial political party in Malaysia, doing very well. 
over the last two elections and even DAP is now trying to reach out. And even at a certain point, PAS was trying to reach out to the, you know, beyond its normal base. So I think that that is the way forward. Unfortunately, you know, the, the BN is not really working towards that end and uh, to the detriment of the unity of, of the country. Well, things are very uh, tumultuous at the moment in Malaysia for a variety of reasons. Yeah. You've got a very difficult hurdle because Barisan National's political strategy has been very, very effective. Mm. Now, since the 1970s, when Mahathir, the previous prime minister, introduced the positive discrimination policies into Malaysia to help Malays uh, mm. come up economically, what has been achieved so far has been that public service has 90% of Malays as opposed to a mixture of um, Chinese and Indians and Malays. Yep. The wages, for example, has um, gone up 20 times between 1970 and 2009. Yep. Now, this is this is a good thing because people are being alleviated from poverty. Yeah. But because Barisan has built such a strong mm. uh, base in, yeah. in, in this form, what, what strategies does PKR have in relation to countering that strategy? Well, I think first of all, yes, I mean, I think the new economic policy has, uh, has many achievements, uh, without doubt, you know, uh, alleviating poverty, uh, creating a Malay middle class, which did not really exist before 1970. That's right. Uh, and so on and so forth. But yeah. I think what we are pushing for is that we really need the aid needs to be targeted. So, you know, what has happened is that, ironically, because of the creation of a Malay middle class, unfortunately now it's the children of Malay elites that are getting more benefits rather than the real poor Malays uh, or the other indigenous people uh, from uh, East Malaysia, for example. So what we are saying, and and there are also, you know, poor Indians, poor Chinese, which are left out from the system. So for for PKR, we've been pushing for an affirmative action that is based on need rather than race. And at the same time, we tell the Malays that they shouldn't worry because the majority of the poor are still the Malays and they will continue uh, to get benefits. Uh, In fact, they might actually finally, you know, get more benefits under the system because it will not be uh, monopolized by the elite. And I think that, you know, even among the ordinary Malays, the the middle class, the lower middle class, the working class, who think been for so long uh, given the idea that they are being protected by AMNO, the ruling, the dominant party in the ruling coalition, by all these measures. But, uh, you know, the amount of corruption you know, has really alienated many because, uh, you know, people are going through hard times. We've just had the goods and services tax introduced. Economy is, uh, you know, does not really trickle down to the bottom. Uh, inequality has uh, grown uh, over the, the past decade or so. You know, so these things are really providing a challenge for ordinary Malaysians, including Malays that form the majority of the country. So actually in the last two elections um, I mentioned off air before, the, there has been a uh, draining of Malay votes from Barisan yes. National to alternative parties. Yeah. And that's clear. Now, you have elections in a couple of years, mm. isn't it? So at the moment you have a party Keadilan has the Selangor. Is it, PK, is it Pakatan or party Keadilan that is a majority in, in Selangor? Well, in fact, the AP and PAS has uh, equally, they, they both have 15 seats each, but we have 13 seats. But, you know, all three parties agree that PKR gets the Menteri Besar position. Okay, so now the, the issue here is amongst the three parties that have formed the opposition under the, the name of Pakatan Rayat, yeah. you have a lot of problems within the, the three parties. Yes except in Salongo, where you have an agreement. How do you envisage that such coalitions will be effective in the other states? 
to go down to the drawing board quickly. And I think, uh, you know, Malaysians want a solution. Coalitions have problems generally. You know, the ruling coalition is facing this huge crisis of confidence, especially the Prime Minister, the corruption scandals. We'll uh, come to so that. <laughs> we'll come to that. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so, you know, people are putting a lot of hope on the opposition to get its act together. So, I, you know, so what we are doing is that that's why we've uh, called for all parties. The other day, uh, the opposition leader, uh, Dr. Wan Aziza, she called all MPs who are interested in reform to come and meet together. Uh, we were, you know, hoping that there would be a few uh, ruling uh, party MPs who have the courage to join. But they didn't. Uh, but otherwise, it's uh, you know the usual suspects, i.e., PAS, PKR, and DAP, and including uh, the civil society actors. So you know we 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 will continue to push that effort to to formalise again our working relationship between all the parties that are interested in change. Uh, but definitely, there needs to be a new formula with all that has happened. I mean, uh, in order to uh, convince the, the the people. In fact, you guys have a duty as an ex-Malaysian. I have to say <laughs> say that very firmly. Yes, yes, I agree. It's one of the reasons I left Malaysia was because of the sort of racial problems. You know, it's very difficult to survive in a situation like that. Yeah. Over and beyond that, you have served as an assistant to the opposition leader, Anwar Ibrahim. Yeah. Now, you you mentioned that um, Anwar Ibrahim's wife had called for uh, a coalition meeting to try and uh, nut out further plans to try and oppose BN. Yep. The, how strong a role is Anwar Ibrahim pr- playing in this in this uh, strategy? Well, uh, you know, I mean, he. I think the opposition we suffered from three major losses over the year: the the passing away of Karpal Singh from the AP, yes. Aziz from PAS, mm. and the imprisonment of Anwar. Uh, they all posed a huge uh, challenge on the three parties because they played key roles in getting the three parties working together. Yes, uh, mm. and Anwar personally, I mean, he continues to be briefed uh, by through his lawyers um, and through his family and also the, the, the chief minister of Slango, Azmin Ali, who uh, meets him from time to time. You know, through that, he will pass messages and also issue statements. And I think he, his role is just as in, instrumental, just as played an instrumental role in the, the forming of the party during his first imprisonment. So, yeah, I mean, he continues to play a key role, but it's also important that, uh, you know, the leaders there are outside from prison and now that we have we're in a better position, you know, because we have state governments, um, there are more, many more MPs uh, to play our role as well to contribute towards getting this new cooperation to materialise. So it's great to see uh, young new leaders coming up who are you know, very um, good at organising and it's very encouraging. But maybe now we should move on to the scandals, which is always interesting to talk about. <laughs> now, the latest has been uh, the current Prime Minister Najib Razak has been accused of having $700 million um, into his account, and that news was released by the Wall Street Journal. And today in the news is that his wife (laughs) also has deposited hundreds of thousands of dollars into her account. What is going on? I don't know. I mean, you know, uh, it's something which, I mean, even in Malaysian standards, where we have seen since Mahathir's time especially, uh, major corruption scandals have become the norm. Yes, he was known as a 10% Prime Minister, wasn't he? (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, this is even more astounding, you know, on how blatant it is. And he has not actually denied it. All he said... 
so far is that the money was not for personal use, you know. Uh, he did not, you know, benefit personally from this money. So, you know, he did not deny that monies were transferred into his account, which is already a major problem. And this is from leaked info from investigation papers of uh, the government task force. It is something which is really, really serious and it puts him in a very difficult position. And even the deputy prime minister, who ha- also happens to be the deputy president of his party, has come out with a strongly worded statement, which is, you know, it's not really a vote of confidence for Najib. So I think he is facing a lot of problems and not to mention that, uh, Mahathir himself, who remains to be popular within the party in AMNO, uh, has come up with uh, many statements uh, asking for Najib to leave and even uh, another former, and I think this is, you know, he's no friend of, of Mahathir, Musa Hitam, uh, who was also uh, was estranged from Mahathir. He has also asked uh, Najib to, at the very least, go on a leave of absence. Uh, so I think, you know, it, it puts the Prime Minister in a very, very difficult position. So perhaps Akmal might know something, but does he know any more about it than you do? Because he's uh, from the Whistleblowers Centre, isn't he? Yes, I think he would be a good person uh, to talk to, uh, to give more details about uh, what has happened. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, you can, you can talk to him. That'll be great. Thank you so much, Nick. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Lalita. Hello. Hello, Akmal Nazir. Welcome to 3CR and thank you for speaking to uh, Solidarity Breakfast. This is juicy news, I suppose. People like a bit of a scandal, don't they? Uh-huh. Um, what is actually going on? I mean, you, you're from the Whistleblowers Organization now in Malaysia. Uh-huh. Um, what updates can you give us about this case with Najib Razak having all this amount of money transferred in his account and now the wife as well? Would you have any more information about it? Definitely. I think uh, for our organization, we do receive some tip off about uh, 1MDB. But at the moment, I think WSJ, Wall Street Journal, as well as Sarawak Report have published the bank records, the personal account of Najib as well as Rosma. So uh, at the moment, I think for our approach, we will let WSJ and Sarawak Report to expose all the details they have and probably when the time for us to reveal for more details, then we will come in. Okay, so you were informed just like everybody else. It just came out in the news. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Wall Street Journal just released it. You had no idea that was happening before that. In fact, actually, we were among the first who started to expose on 1NDB as well as the link with Najib. It was, it was being exposed by Rafizi, our uh, director, like in the past two years. And I think when well, the public pressure against 1MDB, uh, I think more individuals who work or who are actually in part of the system come out and pass the such document. Uh, I, I cannot confirm with you either we have received the document or not because at the moment the police has given the hint that they will investigate WSJ on how they managed to get the document. So no, no one's investigating the Prime Minister and his wife at this stage? Well, the government announced that they had set up the special task force who was supposed to investigate the link with, uh, with Najib. But from what can we say, from the public view, it seems quite, quite unclear because first, they don't even define what is the task force responsibilities, what are they looking for. And Najib is the one who becomes the spokesperson for the task force. So it's not going to be an easy... Um Investigation if uh, Najib um, is going to be there supervising it. Yeah, because he is the one who announced to the media what will the task force do. And in fact, when the 
IGP, the chief of police, or even the AG, uh, when they came to the public, they were speaking about the need to investigate how the documents got leaked. So they are more interested to know how the documents got into the hands of Wall Street Journal and Sarawak Report. And internationally, there's no other investigation happening because it is from international money. This is this is going, isn't it, into a, a prime minister's account? Mm-hmm. So the the bank is not just a Malaysian bank; it's also an international institution, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's no other country launching an investigation. Well, but so far, because the the one being exposed by Wall Street Journal is Najib's personal account in Malaysia, so. In fact, they haven't gone up to the point how from one MDB transferred the money to few layers of companies and then from that particular company, the money got transferred to his account. Uh, we, we haven't ruled out the possibility to investigate in other countries because it does involve some other jurisdictions. But so far, the line, the line is still unclear because we only know they park the money in the, the tax-free island and then but no one has come to the public about the other countries that got involved so far so it's a, it's a matter of watch the space from now isn't it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. okay okay thank you so much for making yourself available to 3CR and hopefully we'll talk again about further developments i'm sure it'll be really a hot potato up up in malaysia yeah yeah it's an interesting time at the moment uh-huh. okay hey thanks for the call thank you bye yeah thanks The Kurdish Workers' Party, otherwise known as the PKK, was established in 1984 to fight for the self-determination of Kurdish people in Turkey. It is supported by millions of Kurds and in recent times has played a crucial role in defending Kobani and Rojava against ISIS. Yet the Australian government named the PKK as a prescribed terrorist organisation in 2005 and it has remained on the list ever since. The listing comes up for review in August 2015. Australians for Kurdistan Committee in Melbourne is calling for the PKK to be delisted and are collecting endorsements. You can add yours by going to www.liftthebanonthepkk.org. Australians for Kurdistan Committee in Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Okay, we go straight on to the interview with Kwakilavani, who is a uh, candidate in the northeast of Sri Lanka for the elections coming up on the 17th of August. Welcome to 3CR, Kwakilavani. Thank you so much for agreeing to speak to um, 3CR in Melbourne. Tell us about yourself and explain your policy and strategy to win freedom for the Tamils. Um, okay, uh, thank you for giving me this opportunity. Uh, I'm Kuglavani, uh, contesting in the parliament election 2015 on behalf of All Salon Tamil Congress Party, which is a part of Tamil National People's Front. My native and living place is Kilnochi district. Uh, I studied at Sen- Kilnochi Centresa's Girls College up to grade 10 only because uh, because of the military advancements and the atrocities of the Sri Lankan forces, I was unable to continue my studies. So my routine life was changed by the war situation. Uh, those were the reasons I got involved in the movement. Uh, I was lasting with the movement for 
14 years and during that time I was taught English language and uh, also information technology. Uh, after some times, I mean in the latter part of uh, 2005, I left the movement due to my personal reasons with the consent of the movement. Uh, thereafter, I got an employment at uh, a consortium of international non-governmental organizations which came to Sri Lanka in the early part of 2005 for tsunami reconstruction. Uh, in the latter part of 2008, all the international organizations have been forcefully removed from the Venice soil by the Sri Lankan government in order to launch uh, military operations in a massive scale. Uh, people from Menel have started the first displacement and uh, we all together ended up in Muliwaikal. All the other people have been trapped in the so-called no-fire zone in the coastal areas and the rest the world knows. At the end of the war, the people were moved towards the government control areas and ex-carders were arrested and detained. I was detained for one and a half years and then released. Uh, when I came out from the detention, there are many issues I encountered, uh, including security and uh, unemployment. Uh, due to my LTT background, job opportunities were rare and then I found a job in one of the demining organizations and after some time I moved to one of the members of parliament's office. Since then, I started to observe uh, how our Tamil political representatives carried out our political path towards the permanent solutions for the Tamils and really became so fed up of the plight of our people because our representatives are not concerned about our rights or aspirations. They were behind the aspirations of foreign power. For the past five years, nothing happened towards political solutions or well-being of, of our Tamil people. In this juncture, I found Tamil National People's Front is the only hope of Tamils. I also have the same hope as the people. Therefore, I have joined to TNPF, hoping that we can create a change in the current political trend. Uh, when we talk about the freedom for Tamils, uh, the fundamental issue is resolving the problems of the Tamil national questions. When we take up resolving the Tamil national questions, we have been working towards resolving the issues for more than 50 years. So we all know that the fundamental solutions can be recognizing us, I mean Tamil, as a nation within Sri Lanka. Without resolving the fundamental issues of Tamil national questions, all the other solutions will give merely a temporary results. That's what I believe. Therefore, the TNPF, the party where I am in, the party's policy and strategy mainly focus on the demand of recognizing Tamils as a nation within Sri Lanka. Uh, since the independence of Sri Lanka in 1948, the Tamils have been fighting for a cause on what we deserve to safeguard us through many non-violent ways. Everyone knows about it and then since we don't have any mean, meaningful resolution for many years. At some times the Tamils were forced to defend themselves that eventually came as armed struggle and that went on for, for the last 30 years. Through this last 30 years of struggle, the Tamils in the North and East in Sri Lanka and also the Tamil diaspora stood together in advancing the struggle towards achieving the solution that is recognizing Tamils as, no, as nation in Sri Lanka. And then in 2009, the world knows what has happened in the so-called final phase of war. At the end of the war in Mulivaikal, there was a mass killing occurred it is genocide. And once that genocide took place in Mulivaikal, the issue of Tamils reached the international level. You all know that earlier all our issues were limited within the boundary of Indian region and now it has gone beyond that level. Now the strategies are very important for our party to advance from this point. 
so whatever strategies now keep careful considerations about the geopolitical situation and the developments carried out by united nations and grassroots organizations and human rights organizations once we understand clearly we have to work with the international community and all types of other organizations including united nations to bring a solution for our people the solution will be like the tamils must be recognized as a nation within sri lanka okay the um the strategies you're using uh, obviously um hopefully going to um bring some fruit in your election campaign there are other issues that are of of major concern too one of them is uh, the question of women in the northeast can you tell us what the immediate issues are for them and about your work with them okay uh, due to that war due to the war uh, there have been more than 90000 women affected uh, in a very bad situation uh, we can categorize them as war widows women will belong to the missing people abandoned women with a disability ex female cadres so it seems that every one of them have lost at least one member in their families due to the past ethnic conflicts and most of them were the breadwinners as most of them have lost their male members in the family the outer world take advantages over that and due to that reason they encounter much problems economically culturally security wise and psychologically uh, it's most important to free from all these issues particularly the women need to be economically independent then only uh, the other releases will be possible actually i have been working with the affected women group in the past so i believe that i have some sort of experiences in handling the women issues in in a systematic way if i would be elected this time my main focus will be the women and the children okay um the main focus on human rights is the other uh, another issue uh this has been a long standing issue for the tamil in sri lanka what do you expect from the international community in this area uh yes uh, we all are expecting that the statements will be released in september from united nations human rights councils regarding the investigations on the war crimes carried out during the final phase of war in the veni region through some media we learned that the document of investigation mechanism has been leaked and according to that leaked report the investigations will be carried out internally and only technical assistance will be given by un experts if that leaked report is a true one it will be really disappointing i'm asking the international community on behalf of our people how the world allows the perpetrator to do the investigations how will that investigations be a genuine one Uh, our party has taken a stand that it cannot be allowed the internal investigations are never going to give a solutions for the casualties we uh, i mean our party strongly opposed the system set up already personally i can say you something uh, i have been in the veni region during the final phase of war i know well what happened there as i am a direct witness i can say you well on how the lives of people had been taken by heavy artillery cluster bombs aerial bombardments and direct rifle shots today in one of the websites i read that the minister and the cabinet spokesman mr rajendra senaratna has given an interview for the bbc single service he said uh, that the civilian deaths cannot be considered as war crimes how simply and bravely he issued his statement without considering the pain of the lives which were t- uh, taken mercilessly we the tamils are having much hope on the international community as well as the united nations that uh, with their interventions 
we will be provided the right solutions for the war crimes. Therefore, we, we urge them to give their support and cooperation to us to bring an international investigation on the human rights violations carried out. And the last question, what is your plea to the grassroots organizations and the human rights groups that support you from around the world? Um, I hope that I answered for these questions uh, before. Anyway, um, human rights organizations and the grassroots organizations around the world are well aware of our national issues and the price we have given for that. Uh, we have to be accepted as a nation within the country. To be honest, rights of the Tamils cannot be given, it must be taken. We have been fighting for the rights for decades and decades. It was carried out in a different way before 2009 and now we are fighting for our rights democratically. So as you are raising your voice for oppressed races all over the world, you have to give your voice for our issues too. This is my request. Okay, that was great. Thank you so much, Kohilavani, and all the very best for your election campaign. And we certainly will be keeping a very close eye on what's happening there. Okay, thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. That was Kohilavani from the northeast of Sri Lanka. And before we go on to Marcus, I want to apologize for the quality of um, audio. Um, when I was talking to Akmal and also the background noises in Kohilavani, it was unavoidable when you're making international calls. It's a bit tricky. Anyway, here we go. Here's Marcus. If a copper belts you in the head with a baton on the lock, one decided your copper's weak. Right, oh, but there's no prizes. There's no prizes for us having a big fight with this crew. On this week's edition of Talking Sheds on Community Radio 3CR, we pay tribute to union legend the late, great John Cummins. Better known as Cummo, John was the Victorian Secretary of the Builders' Labourers' Federation until amalgamation into the CFMEU in 1994. From 1996 until his untimely passing in August of 2006, Cummo was the Victorian President of the Construction Division of the CFMEU. Cummins was also a long-serving presenter on 3CR, co-hosting The Concrete Gang. Cummins worked as a scaffolder on the ill-fated Westgate Bridge project where 35 young men lost their lives in the collapse catastrophe. It was on that job that Cummo became a shop steward and caught the attention of then BLF Secretary Norm Gallagher. Cummins passed away on August 28, 2006 from a brain tumour and following this the John Cummins Memorial Foundation was established to honour the legacy of Cummins and to raise funds to support the well-being of cancer patients diagnosed with a brain tumour and social inclusion of young people experiencing financial disadvantage through funding and a scholarship program. Each year, his many comrades gather at the Mooney Valley Racecourse for the annual John Cummins Memorial Dinner. During the period of deregistration of the BLF from 1986 onwards, many builders' labourers were blacklisted. On the Costain's job in the Melbourne CBD, more BLF members were sacked and under the leadership of Cummins, the workers shut the job down. Well, the biggest pockets in town are Mr Cheers, and we'd all like to be going half as bad as him. Now, he's the one that caused it, and it's only right that he's the one that uh, picks up the tab. During the deregistration period of the Builders' Labourers' Federation, Camo paid a personal price, having been arrested countless times in serving his members. In July 1990, John Cummins was jailed for contempt for going onto the latent site at 417 St Kilda Road. His wife, Diane, addressed a rally in support of John. Go. The government 
ensure that John stays in jail because of the fact that he's a bloody good union organiser. After being released, Cummo returned to the picket line in place at 417 St Kilda Road. Cummins said the law was wrong. The fact is the law upholds this system of screwing the greatest possible profit out of the workers so the rich can get richer and the poor poorer. The court's role is to make sure the whole thing works smoothly. In an open letter to all Australian workers, John Cummins wrote, If workers stand united, sooner or later their success is guaranteed. Cummins educated many thousands of workers in the struggle of the working class. Former president of the Gasfitters Union, Ken Mooney, recalls. There's never been laws that have been made to help working class people. They've only ever made laws to fight us. So the only weapons we've got is to stand up and fight. I think it's absolutely fantastic. There's about 8,900 here and um, I think the Cummins Foundation does a fantastic job and congratulations to every one of them. And, uh, but we've all got to stand together and fight together. And, uh, what... when, I worked for pub- when I worked for Public First in Trades Hall, I used to go for a two-hour walk before I started work. And when, when they were building the MCG... John Cummins was going down there and I used to say to him, what are you up to, you bastard? I can see you're up to no good. And then we'd banter at each other and um, he'd go his way and I'd go my way. But he was just an outstanding person. Okay, so and you're, uh... very honest, sincere, and that's why he was loved so much. He did things for working class people he, and... He didn't do it for glory, he did it because he wanted to change the filthy system we live under. Cummins was an inspirational leader of working people and a master strategist. As National President of the CFMEU, Joe MacDonald explains. One of the calmest um, uh, revolutionaries I've ever met in my life. I mean, he he never... I'm afraid I get quite excitable at different times. I didn't think... John never did, you know. He was just... um, He was... He was a strategist and he was a genius and as the block said in there, well, he was a legend, but um, I, I think maybe one of my best memories of him was a big dispute in the, <coughs> an inter-union dispute in the northwest, where I was up there and I was talking pretty regularly to John, who was in Melbourne by that time. Um, a couple of other p- unions hadn't supported the dispute and gone on the radio and told the uh, workers to go back to work. I rang Camo up and was pretty gutted when it happened, i got to tell you. And his position was, you shouldn't worry about it, you've just won the dispute. My response was, did you hear what I just said, that they've got on the radio for them to go back to work? And um, he said, and did you hear what I said, you've just won the dispute? And the next day, nobody went to work. Everybody joined the strike. Now, I, I didn't see that coming, but Cummins didn't. He was just, um, he was on the other end of Australia. And I was right in the heart of it, and he picked up what I missed. Kevin Reynolds, former BLF organiser in Western Australia, rates Cummins as one of the greatest all-time unionists. Like uh, uh, Johnny Cummins, probably the greatest union organiser I ever worked with. Fabulous bloke. Johnny, uh, Johnny's unfortunately passed away, as a lot of others have. But we, we, we stuck it to him. And, we, you know, we did things that today you'd get locked up for. But there was always a means to an end. There was always a reason. I remember when Johnny Cummins came out of the North West, 
and he was going to go back to Victoria and I said, I'll set you a challenge. You establish no ticket, no start in this city and then you can go home. And he was the sort of bloke that if you challenge John, he'd always rise to the challenge. When we challenged John to do that, um, he, he did. He, we, we, we just shut the city down and uh, time after time after time and sent people uh, home. You've got to remember there were different laws in days. We didn't have task forces. We didn't have... You know, I can remember Charlie Court wanting to declare a state of emergency for the amount of concrete pours we were busting. Cummins was one of the most in-demand union leaders, always sparing time and lending an ear to unionists who sought advice as Cummo's comrade, former leader of the Metal Workers Union, Craig Johnson, explains. Cummo, the great thing about John Cummins, he wasn't only a great trade union leader, he was just a, a, a nice, decent bloke. You could always find Cummo on a Wednesday or a Thursday night at the Curtain that well, but when, when the Curtain was a union pub, for a turn a yuppie pub, having a drink with a rank and file. Cummo was always... And he's happiest with working class people. He was very much involved in the North Hollywood Footy Club with the kids. Yep. He was always involved, you know, down the pub with the. He wasn't. He didn't care about all the high flyers. Come was that sort of oak, and that's what endeared him to so many people. And of course, he was a very, very smart, uh, militant leader. And he had politics, mate. He was a Maoist. Now, I'm not a Maoist, but I respect people with a bit of politics. He was well trained, well educated, and he saw everything in the perspective of the capitalists, and and he understood it. But he could, deal with, he could deal with anyone on any level, you know, he was a great man. Uh, he taught me a lot. I mean, what, what I, look, I, I, I see a lot of people today who are union leaders who are decent people, but they can't put two words together. Come out and, and not oratory, there was an old saying, two ears, one mouth, so you've got to be a good listener. Come out was a great listener, he was a great speaker. He could, he could, he could inspire workers to, to take an issue on. You know, he could go out onto a job where the guys were a little bit, oh, uh, you know, and he could turn that around and say, let's tear the joint down. I mean, he had that great oratory because I think people knew he was fair dinkum. He was a, a genuine person. And Camo never coveted anything for himself. You know, he had a, you know, he was lucky, you know, lovely wife and children all that, and he was care about his family. But his family was the trade union. His family was, and he was, while he was a construction worker, he worked there as a scaffold that. He was much more broadly respected than in the broader trade union movement. A lot of a lot of unions used to go and talk to him to seek advice, counsel, you know, wise counsel, and come on, never let you down, you know. And mate, if we had ten John Cummins, the revolution would be here, mate. The Conservatives wouldn't stand a chance. But unfortunately, we don't have ten John Cummins, mate, and we we sadly miss him when we need him, mate. Yeah. So I'm, and, uh, I love him. He's just a good bloke to have a drink with, and uh, but. You could always bounce ideas off him. He'd say, oh, you know. And you know one thing? He never slagged people. If he didn't agree, if he didn't think someone was much good, he'd go, well, that's your opinion. You know what I mean? But he never go and slag someone. For more details, go to camo.com.au. This is Marcus Herring, Community Radio 3CR, 855 on the AM dial. We're keeping the battle up, and we're the ones that are going to have the last laugh. John uh, was an organiser with uh, what was then the Builders Labourers Federation, the BLF, uh, and um, that went through difficult times where the government at the time, the state government, which happened to be a Labour government, uh, was attempting to deregister the BLF because of their uh, militant activities. And uh, John maintained a right to organise his members as long as the members... um, 
uh, Remain members and wanted him to, uh, you know, support them in their campaign to improve their um, their safety and conditions on the work sites. And uh, yes, we started uh, friends of family, um, friends and comrades of John. Uh, we formed the John Cummins Memorial Fund to uh, to raise funds to honour his legacy. And um, happy to share share with you what we do. Okay. Yep, um, we've got two two areas that we support. So we established um, the brain tumour support service at Austin Health. Uh, John uh, uh, received treatment uh, during his illness at Austin, and at the time, at that time, the services there were basic to say the least. So um, uh, that prompted us to um, partner with the Austin to uh, to fund a, a much needed service to support people diagnosed with a brain tumour. Uh, so that service, we're proud of that service and that service is expands, has expanded since we started it and um, this year we funded 97000 to um, expand the service and for the service uh, for some of the patients to participate in clinical trials. Okay, um, the other thing that we do is that we provide scholarships, we call them Dare to Dream um, and so for their, therefore young secondary students um, experiencing financial disadvantage and that's how people can... Um, uh, I suppose uh, people that might have uh, that might be listening that have got um, young young ones uh, in secondary college might uh, look on our website to apply. Um, the applications come through the school, and we look for for young students that uh, show promise, um, have got some talent, or want to pursue a particular particular area, and. Uh, uh, need the funds to assist. And, uh, for this school year, we awarded 44 scholarships. They're up to $1,000, uh, and um, we granted just over 35,000 for those scholarships. Um, and we've um, we've been privileged, I suppose you'd call it, to support some, you know, some talented young people, um, you know, in our in our school system. And uh, as told to us by the by the uh, by, the teachers and coordinators at the school, and uh, some of their stories are um, are pretty inspiring. I can tell you, and I think the important thing for us is that it provides a balance to what we do. We sort of, uh, you know, we support the brain tumour support service, but also we want to support young people and um, uh, through their studies. Both our sons played for North Heidelberg. Uh, John had uh, some friends that were connected with the club and and uh, so Mick and Shane um, uh, joined the club and along with some of their other their other mates. And uh, one of the things about it was that, yeah, North, he North Heidelberg and West Heidelberg is, uh, is an area of disadvantage um, and there were lots of kids that couldn't afford to, their parents couldn't afford the, the footy gear for them to play and um, so the, the club used to raise some funds to support them and um, we've, we continue to support, uh, to support that club uh, through our sponsorship and we, we see that um, providing opportunities for young kids to participate in team sports um, is a really um, good, really valuable part of their growing up. Great to have the opportunity to, to plug the dinner. Um, it's uh, coming up on Friday the 28th of August. It's at Mooney Valley Racing Club, as it has been every year except the first year. Um, you'll be interested to know that our keynote speaker this year is Jed Carney, okay. um, ACTU president, as you would know. Um, our theme is leadership, so Jed will give a brief, a brief um, 
uh, speech presentation on leadership. Uh, and the ent people are usually entered, uh, interested in um, who's playing because um, we like people to have, have a good night. We've got Ross Wilson this year, Ross Wilson and the Peaceniks. Okay. So that should be a bit of fun for those that know Ross Wilson and his music. Uh, they're $135 each for a ticket. That's a three-course meal and drinks provided and, of course, the entertainment. Um, and you can go online to uh, camo.com.au and click on the link to the dinner and um, you can purchase tickets online. Um, that's probably the easiest. Yes, we're really pleased um, to um, have some, be able to recognise John Lowe at, at last year's dinner. And um, so what we, uh, through Joe, his son, um, we formed a partnership with, uh, with Cricket Victoria. Uh, we call it Lowe's Legends. And uh, we funded Cricket Victoria to... $2,000 to extend their cricket clinics for kids in the northwestern metro area, um, primary school kids. And uh, so they have young boys and girls participate um, at those cricket clinics and uh, they go on through, you know, um, have a number of sessions through the summer months. And we're going to continue that partnership um, in memory of, uh, of John Lowe, um, uh, for as long as we can. So certainly we've agreed to continue it this year and um, if we keep on doing well with our fundraising, we'll, we'll continue it for the years to come. That was Rack and Power Radio and you're listening to Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial and streaming live on the web. Now we are going to have an announcement, then we will go on to the week that was... Join us for the launch of Green Left Radio, a new wing of the People's Media on 3CR. Featuring a massive lineup of radical beats and rhythms from Ezekiel Ox, Davinia Providencia, New Dub City released the dub's DJ set, Ray Pereira and Kanchana Karnaratna on Afro Lankan drumming system, and Pressure Drop. Friday, August 21st at 7pm at the Kindred Studios, 212A, Whitehall Street, Yarraville. Full bar and Sri Lankan feast available from 7pm. $15 full and $10 concession. Proceeds go to 3CR and Green Left Weekly. And don't forget, you can catch Green Left Radio Fridays from 8 to 8.30 a.m. on 3CR. A weak solidarity brekkie team lister went after now sadly former Speaker Brody Bashup the Socialist finally said sorry, as we reported last week especially that she'd been sprung, she then became even more sorry when there was some scepticism about that sorry and thus her successful crusade to clear Parliament of the Socialists came to a sad end, especially as Brody made it clear she had done nothing wrong, amassing several trillion in within-the-guidelines public purse expenses. We also reported her colleague, the Leader of the House under her neutrality, Christopher Payne in the standing firmly behind her as Speaker. 
Christopher was last seen Sunday seemingly wiping all this egg from his face. Must have been his breakfast time, but top marks for timing, just as Brody was resigning to that talented bundle of competence and aptitude, hayseed and sheepshit party giant mind Barnacle Jokes, who praised Brody to the hilt and said every Polly would be in trouble if her or his expenses were analysed. Very clever, Barnacle, because that should presumably lead to your expenses coming under the microscope, being done, gone over with a fine tooth comb to mix our metaphors. Oh, yeah, let's give it to him. Barnacle, you've picked up the perfect timing of the week award. And obviously he's right up there in the inner sanctum of being kept informed. Big Supremo, tiny a bit more for the bosses, said she didn't have to resign after all. She'd given her sincere apology and her resignation was no admission she'd done anything wrong because the fault, if there was a fault, lay in the system. The fault lies in our stars, not in ourselves, as the bard wrote. And all we need now is another inquiry destined for a dusty shelf somewhere. Interesting sub-editorial juxtapositioning Thursday's Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin. Across the bottom of P's 2 and 3, after we'd got past the excitement of the day's biggest world news on P1, half-page picky of swimsuit models, mostly surprise, surprise, not male. White hot, glamour girl Jessica turned the temperature up to sizzling last night. Yes, another great department store catwalk sale, but P's 2 and 3 across the bottom, P2, private mint casino owner and Sunday morning street boxing champ contender Jamie Puker has sold his little Sydney family home for a mere 60 mil. Well, now it turns out it was 70 mil. P3 on the right, our old mate Gina Nohart had splashed out a mere 12 mil buying these beef cattle stations, planning to become True Blue Aussie's biggest Wagyu operator, a little hobby on the side. And in between the two filthy rich celebrating their filthy richness, welfare card trial to limit booze, drugs. 100% at the other end of the wealth scale, plan to prevent Jamie and Gina's victims from getting their hands on any money. Cash-free welfare cards. But although this junior parliamentary lackey, Alan Fudge, the facts, says it's definitely not aimed at Indigenous communities, although Alan admits two-thirds of the poorest of the poor who just don't know how to handle money obviously would be Indigenous, just coincidental, apparently, Wonder if some sub-editor recognised the dichotomy in that layout, that juxtapositioning, although this being the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, I, su I suspect it was just coincidental as well. Uh, Owen, oh, with the white-hot sizzling bikinis and big spread about the Lone Pine slaughter, which helped forge our great values, the Wapping Sin couldn't manage one word about the 70th anniversary of Hiroshima same day. Society, decent, respectable society, has to put up with a lot, doesn't it? Gina and Jamie have to put up with those black bludges, sponges on society. We know the trauma evil unions impose, and this week, those bloody environmentalists used, well, abused the federal court to show Adani the environment's Galilee Basin Megamine had failed to meet environmental requirements, particularly concerning a skink and a bloody ornamental stake. 
Adani, the environment, plans jobs, 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 profit, 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 and what value are bloody skink and silly stakes? So now add to what they have to put up with the bloody courts, which everyone knows are there to protect them. They make the laws and the courts carry them out. Well, poor Fry the Planet Minister Jeff Hunt the Greenies, who in two years in the job has approved a trillion dollars of mining projects, literally true listener, a trillion dollars of, was so angry. The long-haired commie greenie wooden worker in an iron bot were abusing the legal system to delay big mining projects. Poor Jeff exploded. Not sure if Jeff's a lawyer or not, but abusing? Obviously, Jeff hadn't noticed the environmental abusers won the case on a legal point. He hadn't done his job properly. Jeff seemed to miss that point by roughly 100%. But he's given a 100% guarantee he'll now review the matter legally, look at it, look at it independently, give the environmental damage, if there would be any, <laughs> the consideration it deserves, and then approve the project in the shortest possible time. Yes, the separation of powers. Putting the socialist argument on environmental damage, the Queensland, Her Most Gracious Majesty's Land Mining Profits Minister, said his government was extremely disappointed at the judgment. We, like the people of central Her Most Gracious Majesty's Land, want to see this mine go ahead, he told us. Now, the case was brought by the Mackay Conservation Group, so obviously Mackay and or lots of its people have ceased to exist. And with due respect to the good old ornamental snake at the centre of all this, we have to concede its environment is under threat from all these other stakes in the grass. And a study shows Tiny's indirect inaction climate change is crap policy will allow true blue Aussies' top 20 polluters, including our very own brown coal power stations, to increase their pollution. Uh, that's right. Tiny nodded. That's right. This report proves that indirect inaction is working. That indirect inaction is not crap. Is not crap. Not executing the environment. Well, we see all its ads telling us how that great US of resource giant Chevron the profits so cares about the environment and local communities as it establishes offshore mining and onshore workers' facilities at and near pristine Barrow Island off western Trublawazi. No risks whatever. It is now battling the bloody Trublawazi tax departments, which records it said several billion, literally offshore, again literally, to related companies to, as if, as if, avoid tax. Come on. We care, we really care about the environment, the great responsible company responded. And we oppose any move to destroy the tax-free environment we so care about. Uh, uh, what about the environment on Barrow Island, indeed in all the mines and projects you have around the world? Certainly, all those sites are part of the tax-free environment we so love, we so care about. Caring employers have embraced those productivity neoliberal con missions recommendations they should pay workers lots less money, balanced by lots less conditions, pointing out this would be a win-win situation for themselves and for lazy avaricious workers, the perfectly symbiotic win-win situation. 
expressed logically by the True Blue Aussie Metal and Mines Profits Association's Steve Not Happy, who acknowledged that while the report addressed some priority issues overall, it falls short of the systematic reform we so desperately need. Uh, in what way, Steve? Well, my reading of the report leads me to believe that there are some circumstances in which we may still have to pay wages. Tell me, how, how can that help productivity? Mm, strong point. And one commentator said not having to pay hospitality staff meant caring employers would obviously pass on the savings in higher wages for workers throughout the rest of the week. Oh, big chance. Although as he was attempting to slice some pork, the bloody pig took off, last seen flying around the kitchen. And another restaurateur, now they tell us they have to put a surcharge, a loading on weekend prices to offset the crippling wages bill. Well, this restaurateur said the savings from not paying workers could mean restaurants would improve the quality of the food. Now, surely, listener, he wasn't saying they were imposing a surcharge for inferior food. <laughs> oh, surely not. I, I must have misunderstood. And the Chamber of Profits' Kate Carnell bosses attacked evil unions for a scare campaign that bringing back individual contracts under which workers could trade off what penalty rates might remain was a return to work no choices. It was another win-win situation, she said. Despite the irrational union claim, and this is where I need a bit of help, listener, because my memory's obviously playing tricks. It was not a return, Kate said, because the Con Mission has recommended a range of checks and balances, including a no-disadvantage test. Now, Kate, I've asked our listener to help us because I seem to recall that that very test was part of work no choices, of win-win work no choices. Finally, perhaps her idea of no disadvantage is reflected in her comment that individual contracts would allow for penalty rates to be traded off provided workers were better off. Kate, small question, a, a student working weekends only told she he will only get work if she he trades off penalty rates. Uh, just explain that better off bit. Oh, and look, I'm, I'm sure there's a simple explanation. And finally, finally, notice Kellogg's says it will ban artificial flavours and colours from its cereals. In future, it would just sell people an empty box. Good morning. Good morning, Uncle Kevin. We'll, I've never liked uh, Kellogg's cornflakes anyway. Now, good morning, Andrea. Good morning, Lali. Welcome to 3CR. And we are talking to Dr. Andrea Bunding this morning in relation to some interesting stuff in, uh, about climate change and what we are doing, carbon tax stuff, emissions trading, and the latest news about power shops you mentioned, Andrea. So I'll let you introduce yourself and we'll have the conversation. Thanks very much, Lali. Yes, um, I was an engineer and I've been I taught sustainable energy for many years. Um, um, now involved in climate activism in Climate Action Morland. Um, so I've been uh, following very closely what the Australian government's party's policies on what to do about climate change. And of course, 
Uh, we're, everybody's angry about Tony Abbott, who has unwound climate policies. Um, so we're all focused on this. Um, interestingly, Tony Abbott is using that term direct action. Yes, interesting, isn't to it? To promote his policies. Now, direct action used to be, or still is, the term of the left. That's correct. And in fact, direct action is really what we should be promoting. And why has he stolen our term? I don't think he knows he has stolen it. <laughs> no, I think he does. I think this is quite intentional. One thing that uh, he showed, well, certainly the that uh, the Liberal Party has shown it's a bit clever on, is stealing a term and perhaps undermining direct action approaches. Yes. What we would advocate as direct action approaches, not him. Anyway... Yeah, the difference between the two, the positions of the two parties is worth just briefly talking about. Yeah. Yes. So, and even the Greens, actually. Sorry, even Trump, too. Yeah. Greens, of of course. We had a carbon tax. Um, We weren't supposed to call it a carbon tax, it was a price on carbon, but it it was a carbon tax for a few years. It was meant to be a carbon tax for three years, which was then to turn into emissions trading scheme. Now, the difference, of course, is that a carbon tax just uh, taxes uh, carbon emissions. It was around $25 a tonne, but it doesn't put a cap on them. An emissions trading scheme puts a cap on the emissions, which sounds good, hmm. but it's not. It it puts a cap on it and lets the price be determined by the market. So there's trading going on. So supposedly we get those opportunities that are the most effective soonest. The trouble is with the emissions trading scheme that was proposed, firstly by Kevin Rudd, Remember that CPRS, Carbon Pollution Reduction Scheme, a long time ago. And then the Gillard um, carbon price. And now the Shorten proposed emissions trading, they all rely on trading internationally. So it's a market-driven solution, so to speak. It's market-driven and it's connected to international markets. Yes. Now... There's two aspects of the problem here, and they're not often differentiated. So certainly international trading is very problematic. People say, oh, but it's a global problem. Climate change doesn't – it doesn't care where the emissions come from, so why don't we get them from overseas? Mm. The trouble is that uh, the international carbon market is basically in, nearly collapsed. It's in – crisis. And it, uh, so Australia wanted to buy, or the Labor Party in its various policies have wanted to include um, credits, international carbon credits um, from overseas. Now, thinking that this will drive down emissions, but it won't. The thing is, there is a glut of these things on the market. There's so many floating around looking for a home, <laughs> these carbon <laughs> credits. They're now down to one dollar a ton. No, or less than that. Less than that. Oh, <laughs> probably, if you go to the Australian dollar, it's probably about mm, yeah sixty five cents a a ton for of emissions, which is ridiculous. Um, and uh, they're desperately looking for a home. So until that market works, and let's face it, it's probably not going to work. Um, then we shouldn't even. 
contemplating that. We haven't got long enough to wait to see if this market works. It's never worked. <laughs> Look at the but, world today. But, you know, okay, perhaps I might be wrong. Perhaps it might work. Uh, but let's call it for what it is. It's not working. We don't have time. So um, that's, that's certainly... Um, Actually, that's an interesting point of differentiation between Labor, Greens, and Liberals. The Liberals do not want to trade international with international carbon permits. Tony Abbott, it appears that Tony Abbott is the one holding out. Now, actually, it's a good thing. It's the only thing I can say. Really? That Abbott is actually quite sensible on saying we shouldn't be trading with international permits. Now, everybody else is saying, no, Tony, we must trade internationally. Business is saying it, even environmental. Why do you think think it's a good thing? To what? Not to trade internationally. Because Australia has to reduce its own emissions. Cool. Okay. Now, when we trade internationally, we're outsourcing the problem. Correct. To developing countries, Correct. we are one of the highest emitters per capita emitter, emitters in the world. We have a huge job ahead of us. We've got to pull our weight. Now, there's a moral aspect that we we've just got to do it ourselves, and then there's the self interest aspect. Why would we even want to keep a carbon intensive, you know, a carbon intensive industry, carbon intensive electricity when we know we know we have to slash it? We know this is coming. So why would we even do that to ourselves? So it's stupid for self-interest reasons and it's morally wrong because we've got to do the we've got to do the hard yards ourselves. Australia has to rapidly transform uh, all it's like it's electric all of its energy sector uh, from using fossil fuels we've got to stop stop doing that and of course we've got a whole lot of other areas like agriculture where we've got to slash our emissions. So we've got to do it here. Now, the one thing I'll, that Tony Abbott says is, yes, we've got to do it here. But I think he's doing that to undermine the Labor Party. Mm. It's not, obviously, he's not interested in in uh, in taking strong action on climate change. So, you know, I think that's muddying the waters. So I have heard Greens attack direct action, yep. taking his term literally. Now... We want direct action in terms of real action on the ground here in Australia to change our electricity sector. And we can't call direct it direct action anymore because he's stolen our term. Now, that's okay. So there's the whole aspect of doing it uh, internationally. Interestingly, the United States is taking a different approach. So, for example, California says, no, we're not having this international trading. Because these permits, we can't guarantee they're real. Mm. Uh, there are a lot, lot of doubts being raised about them, whether they're actually genuine. Um, they're getting better. There's certainly been problems in the past. They're only trading within themselves and with, uh, with some Canadian provinces. So they've sort of kept it in-house. Now, that would be a better thing, but it's still problematic. It's still highly problematic. Uh, to have this market mechanism. One of the reasons is, and this is what happened under the Gillard government, is they started winding back other regulations to to reduce emissions. Mm. They said it can all be done with a price. Now, this is not true, right? What did the carbon price actually do? Do you know what it did? 
Tell me. <laughs> tell me. Well, people think it slashed emissions. Hmm. It did for a while, and that's because the hydropower stations basically drew down their dams right. for a couple of years. So they drew down their water storages. They could produce more renewable energy for the two years. Uh, brown coal power stations backed off a bit. Of course, there was this issue with the flooding, which, um, which affected their output. But um, there was a little exchange. You know, we had more hydro for a couple of years because they were running down their dams. Now, you know that hydro, they'll have to you know, wait for the rain and, and stock up their dams again. So it was really problematic to say that it reduced emissions. Did it drive uh, the types of things that we want, which is renewable energy, energy efficiency in particular? Well, it's hard to say if that happened. I don't think... Well, it didn't drive renewable energy. Now... What everybody focuses on is renewable energy. That's great. We need that, of course. But we are such a wasteful, energy-wasteful country, right? We look at our houses. They leak like sieves. We've got some of the worst housing regulations, you know. If you go to and you compare us to some of the European standards, we are shocking. We shouldn't be selling or we shouldn't be allowing, you know, these to be sold, these such houses to be rented, so so that's one big thing, mm. is that we've got to stop this energy waste. It's ridiculous putting up wind farms to, <laughs> and so on to, to supply the energy which is then wasted. We've got to address both. So you can see um, we're, we're a huge user of cars and other vehicles. Our public transport system is, you know, if, if you compare it to some European places, it's shocking. There are so many things where we've got to reduce our energy usage. Now, what? how do you do that? How do you make our houses more energy efficient? Now, that, that's a good example because something we can all relate to. How do, how do we ensure that it happens so that people don't have to rent these leaky houses uh, where they're cold, um, you know, and, um, they, you know, they get high electricity bills just trying to <laughs> stay yes. at a reasonable temperature? How do we do it? We do it with regulations. We enforce it. The houses must be of a certain standard. We have the five-star rating for new houses, but even that's not good enough. Not, well, it's not good enough and it doesn't really work in practice. So we need things that really work. This is called, This is regulation. It's yep. actually so. It's not very hard to do it all, really. By most of this, even even local council can do a lot of things. Well, no, yeah, can't they? No, local council are, are restricted in what they can do. So you can see that the, a lot of these flats that are being built, mm. you know, I see them where I, you know, uh, uh, in where well, I around live, Brunswick, around yeah, there's a yeah. lot of them. Now, if you've ever gone into one of them. They are very badly designed in terms of their energy use, particularly for, for they get hot. Mm. Um, they don't allow uh, ventilation and so on. They're really bad. We shouldn't be allowing such poor energy, new new housing stock. We shouldn't be allowing these to even be built. Mm. Now, local council can't do that. That's really a, a that's, state That's, that's really sad because local councils are the ones that approve these buildings. Yeah. I think the local councils, I know my own council more, has been trying to drive a great a higher standard mm. of energy efficiency for for houses. Um, 
to, but you've got to change state the state government. This is really a state and federal government issue that they don't have these strong regulations to stop this sort of stuff. We mm. shouldn't be building new, new houses that are bad. That are poor, yeah, yeah poorly designed. And we've got to get our existing houses into, you know, into a much better state. Mm. Now, now what, what, sorry to interrupt, but what I want to do is I think – those sort of issues, a lot of people are there fairly conscious of it. And because the reason I say that is it's – you look at the, the uptake in solar energy mm. by people. It's a phenomenal compared mm. to what it was. It's a growing industry. And I've been to some of those exhibitions. It's amazing the yep. number of people who come there. And what's even more interesting is the, is the um, traders who come there, the manufacturers – and I went to one of the Melbourne Convention, Convention Centre. I was surprised at the crowd there. Mm. Was, there's an enormous interest in renewable energy. People on the ground are interested. They want to keep the planet safe, mm. unlike the politicians. Yep. Now, what, what I'd like to look at also briefly, the um, Greens policy on this. Yeah, well, the Greens have actually, from what I can work out by reading their policies, <laughs> seem to have shifted over time. So in... The days of Kevin Rudd with the Carbon Pollution Reduction Scheme, they were trying to stop this international trading. Yep. Um, and so they wanted that restricted. I believe it was 20% and they wanted high standard of you know permits that were renewable energy overseas and so on. So they were trying to restrict it. They were trying to get a higher target and so on. Now... Because they did this deal with with, uh, with the Gillard government, they were sort of tied into what the Gillard government proposed, um, which was a weaker, you know, certainly something that allowed more of this international trading. And in fact, wouldn't have reduced Australia's emissions. Hmm. That's one thing. If you look at the Treasury model of the Gillard uh, emissions trading scheme, it would it didn't reduce emissions out to 2050. Now, that's staggering. People it's think disgusting. emissions trading was supposed to be capped yes. and driving down emissions, and that's because they allowed international permits. Now, the Greens went along with this. The Greens' website uh, policy, as far as I can see, is to say, yes, emissions trading in the long term will work. Now, what I'm trying to say, what I've been saying when I was talking about regulation, is emissions trading stops good regulation. So this has happened in Europe, right? So a lot of people, a lot of environment groups are up in arms about the European emissions trading scheme. That's because it's given mega bucks to the fossil fuel industries with you know great. all this compensation. Yes. That's one thing, but it's also stopped good policy to you know, strong regulations right. because they think it can all be done through emissions trading. Mm. They think it's a silver bullet, yeah, right. right? So put a price on carbon and that will drive down emissions. That is the idea. It doesn't work in practice. If you want to make houses more energy efficient, mm. for example, you make a law. Yeah. The law says you cannot rent out a property that leaks like a sieve and so on. That's how you do it. Yep. Now, the trouble is emissions trading drives out those other ones, and that's what happened under the Gillard government. A lot of energy efficiency measures got thrown out. So they're counterposed? Well, they don't have to be. Mm. They don't but, have but to be. But they are being counterposed the way they are using it at the moment. 
or in the in the recent past? Well, yes. I mean, this is what's happened. I guess it's. I guess they they there may be some who would say. I mean, they call them complementary measures, which in itself is a funny term. So strong regulation to make our homes and stuff more energy efficient is complementary to the carbon to a carbon price. Now, I think it should be the main game. Yeah. Now, you know, relying on a price to sort of drive change is very indirect. We have no evidence that it works, whereas we know strong regulation works. You know what the the best thing we've done to drive energy efficiency in the past two decades is? Tell me. Is mandatory energy performance standards on refrigerators. Yeah, that was good, wasn't it? Yes, it's amazing. That saves more emissions than all those solar panels. Fantastic. That is amazing. Now, I know people want to do their bit. Everybody wants to do that. Well, yeah. that's interested in this, wants to know how they can contribute. A lot of people are looking to put up solar panels if they can afford it. Yep. If they have a, if they own their own home and they're, they're allowed to do it on, you know, not heritage um, issues. A lot of people want to do their bit. But there are many other ways that we can contribute. Of course, we can contribute in our own lives. But I think we've got to contribute collectively. Yes, absolutely. We've got to be, you know, like I'm a member of a climate action group. Mm-hmm. We've got to think about collective collective uh, action to try and force these sorts of changes, to put the ideas out there with, to people about what we actually need, to get greater discussion going in our community. So you're suggesting collective action... Good regulations. Strong. Not strong. Strong Strong regulations. (laughs) Pardon me. (laughs) Very strong regulations. Okay, so that is is a a good strategy, just that alone. Yes. But then when you've got governments that totally are committed to a market-led solution, Mm. you're going to have a big fight on your hands. Yes, yes. Now... I know, you know, I think, I know Ross Garno has been um, driving a lot of this, um, you know, in terms of climate policy, though he has, um, uh, I think he's, you know, he's certainly held out in terms of what's happened is, is the power generators have got a lot of compensation. Yes. Uh, this so compensation, got billions. Yes. Billions of dollars compensation. I think I think they ended up paying one billion, My billion, not not million, one one billion, to the brown coal generators. Now Ross Garno has been warning about this sort of thing that the power generators put their hands out. Um, so he's been trying to stop some of the excesses of, of that, but still. Uh, he has been pushing very hard. You know, he's been a key advisor. Uh, the emissions trading. Now, I think he would also, you know, think, acknowledge that you do need the the complementary measures. But look, you know, I, I I think we don't have time to see if this is eventually going to work. That's Th- those my of biggest us, concern. Yeah, we don't have time. Those of us who are sceptical about market solutions, and mm. you and I prob- probably yes, are, absolutely would <laughs> say. No, you know, don't go this way. But we don't have time to muck around to see that if it can eventually work. And we don't know what the time frame is. What does it mean, eventually work? You That's know? right. Or in the long term it will work. How yeah. long? We've got to drive our emissions down now, quickly. Things that can do that. Of course we need renewable energy targets. Absolutely. A strong renewable energy targets. But very strong emission, uh, regulations to slash, to reduce 
slash energy waste to transform our transport systems and so on. We've also got to look at agriculture emissions from that. It's right across the board. We can't expect this to be driven by a price. Mm. And there's no silver bullet. There's no silver bullet. We've got to do the hard yards. And uh, so this is the sort of thing that we expect. So Labor is just going on about an emissions trading scheme. They've now semi-adopted a 50% 50 renewable target by 2050, but I don't think, I think, I'm not sure if they've absolutely committed to that. I think that was sort of an aspiration. Mm. Um, The Greens are certainly pushing for renewable energy, but I think they need to be pushing more this idea of strong regulations Regulations. rather than saying that emissions trading will eventually work. So I I think the the Greens on this have been a bit mm, not super clear, and I would like to see them take a much stronger line. Yeah, they've done a good position to do that. Yes, they they could, because people look to the Greens for ideas on this. Absolutely. And when the Greens are saying, oh, emissions trading is... um, is, you know, eventually we're going to work, then people think, yeah, they believe in it. Yeah. I don't think we have time. I think feet on the floor is going to have to push these parties further to the left, especially the Greens, where people look to, as you say, yeah. for direction, for leadership yeah. in this area. And given their party, the history, yeah. and that's what they should be doing. Well, the problem is, certainly I've seen from some Greens members, is they're saying whatever Tony Abbott says is we'll do Wrong. the opposite. Yeah. Now, you've got to think of what works you know, you've got to Correct. think for yourself. We don't get our ideas just by opposing Tony Abbott. That's right. That would be ridiculous, mm. right? So we've got to think about what actually, how we can actually drive change. So the important thing is we've got to drive all change here in Australia. Certainly we should be helping developing countries. Mm. That's the idea of inter- international trading says we should do help developing countries but not ourselves. But we're helping... We've got to do we, both. But we're helping Adani have a, have a coal mine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I have, Adani comes from India and I cannot help myself. It's just criminal as far as I'm concerned. The funny part is I think the Home Minister or the, or the Foreign Minister in India said that just because Adani is from India and he's going to hope... Well, he is hoping to establish a coal mine in Australia, we cannot guarantee we'll buy a coal from him. Yes. So <laughs> that's going to be really, you know, uh, yeah. interesting to watch. Yeah. But I wanted you, uh, lastly, to tell me about the power shops you had oh, uh, some yeah. cynicism about. Just a couple of minutes on that one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just quickly, I've got an article on the latest Green Left Weekly. Now, uh, various of, um, you know, Get Up, Oxfam, uh, Environment Victoria, Avaz, all they're, they're, all, they're all promoting this power shop with well, the idea. Before we criticize, let's say, we we believe they're doing a reasonably good job in terms of, you know, mobilising people and supporting more progressive issues. But in this particular yeah. issue, you you're not sure. Yeah. Oh yeah, because because it's about uh, it's about changing your electricity retailer. So you've probably got an email from them. Switch yes, your electricity yes, yes, retailer. Yes, yes, yes. Now, what I'm concerned about is a lot of people think that they're helping renewable energy by doing this. Yes. They're not. Even I did. You thought that, did you, Lali? You're not helping renewable energy. I was conned. Energy. I was conned. No, no. Um, so it buys its electricity from the sa- everyone, the same and as everyone else. If you want to help renewable energy here in Australia, you buy green power or install solar panels. If you can't, then you must buy green power. Uh, so all electricity retailers, I think all of them, offer green power. Yep. Um, so, you know, I, I'm really concerned that they're, they're not being upfront about this. And what they're doing is they're promoting carbon neutrality, which is basically international carbon offsets. Mm. So they're promoting that outsourcing of our responsibility. And I think things, groups like 
get up and Oxfam, they shouldn't be doing that. They no. should be saying, we've got to do it here, buy green power, rather than doing a deal with with a retailer who pays them around $100 per customer that they switch over to there. So it's... It's a money-spinning exercise. It's not, it's, it's not good. And therefore, the, these NGOs don't have, are necess, aren't necessarily going to reveal, you know, if you want to help renewable energy, just buy green power. This is the way to do it. And there are many ways to do it, not just switching your retailer. And on that note... We've got a strategy for people on the ground, what they can do, and we've tried to explore the politics of the different parties. We didn't go quite international like what Obama's doing, but we'll do that another time. So I would thank um, Dr. Andrea Bunty for coming in this early in the morning, although it's getting a little bit better than the weather's improving, um, coming to studios. Thank you, Andrea, and we'll chat again. Thank you, Lali. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.